makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Ambeti washte lo taya wa chanke chante washte na pechi zapielo le chante etaha ovogalake le unkipiki hewastelo ambeto kile washte kire greetings and good day and welcome my relatives i shake your hands with good heart this is a voice from earth it's good for all of us to be here today will be a good day you're listening to first voices radio and tiokusen ghost horse sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the osopus or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Esopus and the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced, First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill from the Red Lake Anishinaabe Nation is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices IndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. John Michelotti is the founder of Catskill Fungi, or Fungi, or however you say it, in Big Indian in the Catskill Mountains in New York. And the core of Catskill Fungi is about helping people and improving the planet through its work with mushrooms. And with us now, John Michelotti is on the line here, and I'd like to bring him up. Thank you, John, for joining us here on First Voices Radio. Uh, it's an honor to be here, Tiokasen. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. We, we were mm-hmm. in the middle of a good discussion on the phone where it began to talk about a more or less the truer application, if it's mystery, if it's consciousness, of what mushrooms are. And many people do not understand mm-hmm. it. They go with the 70s stereotypical, you can get high from mushrooms. And I kind of delineate that into, yes, because it's, it's full of nutrient and different medicinals and and yes you can get high in other words you can get a a more balanced body from mushrooms and i think that is one medicine that is not heard taking uh and it's being before it gets synthesized out there in its true form talk about that a little bit john and Mm -hmm. i think your practices of sustainable harvesting and leave no trace principles and compassion for the environment. And I like to say that the environment has compassion for us mm. as humans in this, this case. 
What do you remember from that original conversation we had a few months back? Yeah, just as you were saying, I mean, there was, we were talking about the connection of mushrooms and also how they're relatives of us and how we are connected with them um, and how this has been the case for as long as humans have walked the land and, and even further back. And um, their importance in our lives is, is unseen and is also one of these things that um, it's another way in which the environment has more compassion for us. And the more we open our eyes to that, the more appreciation we can have for the world around us. And so I'm excited to, to talk to you more about that today, too. It's, uh, it's been something that, uh, that has interested me uh, more recently in my life, but is, uh, always, it's been a calling ever since I found it. Yeah, the, the, um, ever, ever since you found it, you say that become aware that, that, was, that was, yes, and that was your first consciousness, correct? And right, exactly. So, so we, a lot of people want to jump to the, the benefits of, of mushrooms or the fungi, yet we, or, or is it true that or, or not, whether or not we understand it for as human beings in this, in this container called the human body is in fact a, a fungi itself? Yes, in a way it is, and in a way it contains fungi. And I was walking in the woods today uh, just contemplating the consciousness of fungi today, and I realized that potentially every consciousness could be the consciousness of fungi because fungi were some of, as we know it now, at least everything is bound to change. But for what we know now, we believe that fungi were the first multicellular life on Earth, the fungi-like bacteria. And plants were able to come onto land in the first place because they had connections with fungi. And fungi were the first life on land that were able to break the Earth down to forms uh, of soil that were able to be absorbed by plants. And the way in which the plants and the fungi uh, were working together then is the same way it's working together now. And that's something called mycorrhizal, uh, which is a topic that's being more and more discussed and hopefully changing the way we uh, look at agriculture, where our fungi, these fungi roots, which um, fungi are different from plants. Um, well, we're all relatives, but in a way, they are more closely related to humans and animals because both fungi and animals, we both breathe in oxygen, exhale carbon dioxide. We both uh, digest our food similarly, but differently. So the way we broke off evolutionarily is animals decided to digest food inside a stomach, inside their bodies. And so we take in food, enzymes are released, which break down our food, we absorb the nutrients. Fungi continue to do this externally. So if you can imagine like a, a net, it's, it's more like a, a web. It's more, uh, it's, it's less of an ever-branching tree, but it's more of like a web. And at the end of the web, on those tips, they excrete enzymes which break down things within their environment, and then they absorb the nutrients. 
and share these nutrients with plants. And this was this is where the mycorrhizal fungi come in, is that they're they're gaining nutrients from the world around them, and they're giving them to the plants. And in exchange, the plant is giving them sugars through photosynthesis. And this is why plants were able to come onto the land. It's why plants developed the root structures that we know of was to maximize their connection with fungi. And then more recently, we found that inside every plant is a fungi living within its tissues. Every pine needle, every leaf, every twig, every piece of bark. And it's helping to keep that plant alive, helping it resist drought and climate and uh, changes in temperature. And even when those uh, branches fall off, that fungi inside that plant that's been helping it keep it alive can switch function and help to break it down to make it back into soluble forms for more plants. And so this is, (laughs) when you think about first life on earth, the first life on land, and the fact that we have fungi in us, in our guts, helping us break down food as well, Um, the consciousness of fungi is is really something that is all around us and in us. So it's it's pretty amazing in that way. Yeah, it's very, very amazing and just mesmerizing what you're saying here because I can can picture all the processes that it's going on in our bodies, right? Um, Yes. The thing, does it also, do mushrooms or fungi also break down not only food but toxins and maybe help fight viruses in, in a very unique way? Yes, indeed they can. And it's through uh, a few different ways, but it's mostly to do with that digestive system that we were talking about where if a mycelial mat, a mycelium, just to give an overall, uh, mushrooms, Um, are like the fruit of the fungi, and the mushrooms make spores, which are the seeds of the fungi, and then the spores land, and they start this interconnected web called mycelium. And mycelium is like the tree. And mycelium is not what we see. Mycelium is underground, but it's alive 365 days a year, and it's serving some of the most important functions in the environment, including being being the, um, the, the living system that helps translocate nutrients within that environment and helping uh, as the immune system of our forests because it connects multiple trees together and shares these nutrients. Um, but on the, the way that mycelium grows, you know, it, it, it reaches out, it gains nutrients, it pulls its energy together and fruits a mushroom. The mushrooms make spores, the spores make mycelium, and the mycelium makes mushrooms. So mycelium is very interesting because it can digest lignin and cellulose and hemicellulose. These are like your building blocks of wood, and they're very hard, dense materials. And one thing that certain fungi can do is they can come across Um, pollutants such as hydrocarbons which chemically have a very similar um, look to like some of these hard building blocks of wood like lignin 
And what it does is it'll come across that chemical or that compound, and it, it almost like it's searching through its DNA um, in history to see, like, what have I come across this before? Is there a way in which I can um, use this? You know, it's, it's seeing what's in front of it, and it's, well, not with the eyes, but it's sensing it and saying, this is something that's in my path. You know, how, how can I utilize it? And that finds what it has to do to excrete a certain, it changes the enzymes, it, it excretes so that it can excrete an enzyme and break down that toxin and transform it and even use it as food and make it into an inert, non-toxic state. And even within the fungi itself, it won't have traces of those toxins. It'll be transformed. So, I mean, just as a, as a model for life, as a model for, like, how we connect with things, to be able to, you know, go through your history and, and find out what, what you have inside you, to be able to transform, you know, some obstacle in your path or something that you might deem as toxic in your life. It, it's, a, it's an inspiring um, method. I think so as yeah. far as toxins that's yeah that's one way in which it does it so. well that that's that's one way in which it does it but we're talking with John Michelotti, who's the founder of Caskill Fungi in the Caskill Mountains. And I was thinking along the lines, how intelligent this little multicellular life on Earth began. But yet we, we don't understand how many types or kinds of mushroom or mycelium are out there as we walk unknowingly upon them every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so true. And there's everything from, I mean, they estimate two to 10 million species of which, you know, different types and of which we only have uh, scientific names for, uh, you know, less than 10% of them. So they're largely unexplored kingdom. It's been something that hasn't really been emphasized in our culture. It's been one that despite the fact that they are a keystone species, they are what is holding everything else together, including our soils that we depend on for food. Um, they've been something that have been shunned a lot based on some of their parasitic tendencies uh, for plants and things like this, but um, are really, we're, we're starting to understand there's, there's much more to them. And, you know, <laughs> my main mentor, Gary Linkoff, he, he wrote uh, a very, he wrote the Audubon's Guide to North American Mushrooms, which is a book that many uh, mycologists utilize to uh, know their mushrooms and know at least, let's not say that, let's say to name their mushrooms. But he would go on to say things like, it's good to know the name, but it's better to say something meaningful about it. And I think, you know, mushrooms help us like, be aware of what's around us. You know, the mushroom itself is not going to whisper you to you its Latin name, but it does take observation. It takes you into the present moment when you're looking for mushrooms because when you find one, 
You really have to just take your time with it and look at it and observe it. And that in and of itself is a healthy thing to do. And, um, you know, we're sometimes quick to name things. We're quick to, you know, say, oh, well, I know this. It's got to be that. And then we box it in, and that's what we think about it. You know, it's within that box. But... You know, it's better sometimes to just observe without naming, without boxing it in and and being out there. So even if you don't know your mushrooms and it seems like an overwhelming, you know, because there's so many ones out there, that's okay. Just just being out there and and being with the mushrooms and being, you know, with them is enough. And they have things to tell you if you're willing to listen. Um and just so everybody knows, in at least in North America, there are no transdermal uh, toxic mushrooms. So you can't get poisoned by touching mushrooms or smelling them or appreciating them. You can oh, yeah. have to eat them, but we don't just eat mushrooms. <laughs> That's true. Unlike humans who can, you know, can be contagious to each other by touching each other. That I like that. Yeah. Good point. Yes, and I was thinking about, you know, your time on a mushroom advisory panel here, certifiedly naturally grown, uh, these standards that, mm -hmm. that are upheld by probably some government. Um, is there something that we can go outside of that to, and, and I hope you stay with me, John, is is that we when you were out walking on, on mushrooms, you're aware, and uh, I would like to say the meaning, your friend said the meaning, look for the meaning. And I would like to insert that um, in a lot of uh, languages, native languages, it's, it is about the meaning. It's just not the naming mm -hmm. of it. We, we have action, action verbs for them that mm -hmm. tend to connotate that it is, it, is, it is a noun. So basically we cannot noun a mushroom to death by, by naming mm -hmm. it. So like we have a word. Chanakpa, which which means something like the the wood is awake because of something, and that because of something is a mushroom, or hokshi chakpa, which is like fat boy, that it it grows ever with with an innocence of a boy. It, it's a fat boy, you know, yeah. healthy, and so these are these are funny. That's why our language mm. we laugh in our language a lot. Yeah. Um, we talk about. Yeah what it does and i think the uploading that that you are doing in the mornings is is more meaningful to understand it in that simplistic way where we can talk science all day but you are also an advisor to that advisory panel what is the difference from what they it seems just because of the title that it's more of a sterile way of looking at what is considered a mushroom and that we're trying to unlock a mystery when we will never do that as humans because we can't know everything like you say we only know a small percentage of what mushrooms and mycelium actually do but the consciousness the consciousness is that meaning that you were talking about is that advisable is that something that you put into that advisory panel that you are part of hmm. yeah the the advisory panel um Yeah, that was an interesting call out, and it is. I mean, it's something that I try to, um, I try to really instill in a lot of different things. Like I'll be teaching a wild uh, mushroom safety certification course in the coming years, so if people would like to forage and sell mushrooms commercially, 
uh, they'll need a bit of a like a, a license or a card that says that they can identify mushrooms properly, which is important. Um, but one of the main reasons why I decided to do that was for that reason, was to be able to help people understand if they're going to be doing this, the impacts they're making on the environment and what it is they're connecting with when they're out there. And I think that's uh, it's a good way to to not just tell people about having environmental respect, to, but to feel it, to feel, you know, connected to what's around them. I think that's, uh, I think that's one of the most important things that we can know and that we can feel is to understand that we are connected to everything around us. So as far as the, the mushroom advisory panel, it's a fancy name, but quite honestly, it's, uh, it's a peer-to-peer, like farmer-to-farmer initiative. So if people are farming and they can't afford the certified organic standard, they can also live close to the earth and, and not be using chemicals and um, have a certified uh, naturally grown standard where, you know, it's kind of a checks and balances between farmers and you don't have to pay the high fees for uh, certified organic yeah, and and that you've hosted all these uh, inoculation workshops in New York and Connecticut, far away as Texas, yeah. and as close as New New Jersey. Um, and oh I, yeah. yeah. And I think what what would uh, if I came? I got a couple minutes here. If I came to one of your sure. workshops, what what do I expect? Do I bring pen and pencil or just an alertness? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I would hope you would come to one of the workshops, Theo. And I would love that, first of all. Um, and, um, yeah, we have a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite things to do is um, educate. And it's one of my biggest passions is just to share uh, what I know and what's out there. And so at these workshops, people will come. And we also do mushroom walks where we go out in the woods and we talk about the mushrooms we're finding and what it is they're out there doing and how they're medicinal, how they've been utilized historically, how they've been utilized um, uh, in, in medicine in different ways. Um, and at the inoculation workshops, you uh, roll up your sleeves, you'll get an intro on what fungi are and how to cultivate mushrooms, how to take that mycelium and put it into a substrate or something you want to grow it in, be it sawdust or in this case, an outdoor mushroom log. And, um, and you can drill holes in a mushroom log and you put the mycelium in there and you seal it with wax and everybody gets to go home with their own mushroom log to cultivate mushrooms. And so we're spreading the spores as we go. Um, but yes, it's a lot more hands-on outside and, um, yeah, is, is connecting with mushrooms and in the way in which we can help to, um, cultivate them urge them along. So. You, know, you know, John Michelotti, I'm thinking this is, wow, what if we had mushrooms and hemp to, you know, sort of involve in our lives? Things would be so much cleaner. And yeah. I th- think about this, the medicines that are, that are available that we just don't know about. And this mushroom, yeah. the, your workshops would provide that. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. I think I'll just take you up on that, right? 
Oh, um, good. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So we'll get together one of these days. Um, um, and this is to mm-hmm. broadcast around North America and for Native people also to get to interested because those mushrooms are a traditional way of, of understanding. We know the wildlife and wildflowers, and we don't know enough about the fungi. Maybe there is something there to to energize that that thinking again because i i've heard songs out there when i go back to the reservation i go someplace and they they talk about mushrooms but yeah it's more of a medicinal way all the time and that they are live mm. beings so i want to thank you for being mm-hmm. here and i'm going to give your uh, your website catskillfungi.com right catskillfungi.com mm-hmm. and you can go to that and talk to john uh michelotti and he'll he'll tell you more about this and you'll see what he does it's amazing this other world we don't know and my my um individual quest john is looking for the one that's translucent at nighttime the one that glows at nighttime yes yeah there's about 60 different ones that glow at night it's uh it's pretty interesting and there are some very common ones out there so maybe when you come over for the inoculation we can find one oh. we can have a look Oh, yeah. You just turned me into yeah. a 12 year old kid again. So, <laughs> thanks a lot. That's how I feel when I'm out there with yeah. them, too. All right, John. It's good, yeah. good to talk to you. Thank you for this, this conversation, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, Teokasin, it's, it's an honor to be on this program. Thank you for all right. that you do. And you're listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse.
Forbidden fruit and cherry wine. Thank you very much, but tonight's my night and I'm very by. Swinging for the fences, barbaric Kendrick and I don't time. Everything in life subject to change. Change whip, change ground, change clothes, change opinions. Right before I change my mind, I don't really know your business. Been this since I was bending Lego block. Now you tell the world about me. Dry snitch, tater tots on my shotgun. I gotta pop when nectar starts. Guys, don't let me die. Gotta finish at the first rapper on Mars. Mark my word, I'ma make my mark. Even when they start their martial law, even when these Martians alienate my mental state, is still at heart. Look in my eyes, tell me I died, tell me I tried. Took up on my tell me you love me, tell me that I don't give a f. I barely decide. Wish you could let go, my enemies all of my energy go to the Almighty God. I get drowned in the body, what energy? You amenities, I'm getting better with time. I'm waking. Welcome back to First Voices Radio. During the break, you heard Radioactive by Imagine Dragons. In our next segment, we take a look at the story that has gotten much attention in the news despite recent developments coming out of Albany. It's about indigenous recognition and sovereignty, particularly on Long Island. The fight from Ontakit Indian Nation to be reinstated as a state-recognized tribe might have an end in sight with the passage of a new bill in the New York State Senate that passed unanimously on May 31st. This comes more than a century after the Montauk had lost their recognition in the infamous 1910 Farrow v. Benson case. This legislative action comes with calls both locally in New York and nationwide to rise up for indigenous sovereignty. Recently, native paddlers from tribes all over the country paddled over 1,500 miles in the Northeast to call attention to these issues and in defense of their water rights. Hofstra University graduate journalism student Cody Hemmler caught up to the canoers when they reached New York and prepared this audio feature for the hyperlocal online news site, The Long Island Advocate, and sent to us by our colleague Maria Maria, professor at Hofstra University. For First Voices Radio. Hi, my name is Quinna. I'm from the Tuscarora Nation. I'm Turtle Clan. We're part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And I'm just so grateful to be out here today by the water. That was Quinna Hamby. She just graduated from the University of Washington with her degree in women and gender studies. Most people at this point in their life might be searching for jobs. Quinna flew in from Seattle to New York provide relief to paddlers on a canoe journey through the Hudson from Maine, passing through New York. It's amazing to be back home at this time because I believe my journey started on the water and it happened to be, you know, the canoe journey to Nisqually with Hickory, who's been such a foundational person in this canoe paddle here to Albany. Paddlers came from all over the Northeast to paddle from Penobscot, Maine, down the Atlantic seaboard to Long Island and up the Hudson River to Albany. This is an act of sovereignty for the paddlers, but also raises awareness of the lack of recognition of indigenous people across the United States. I joined these paddlers at Jones Beach in Point Lookout. 
As we waited for over seven hours for the paddlers to arrive, the room filled with over 30 people from the Montaukets, Satellicock, to New York State Park Rangers and environmental protectionists. Shanae Bullock, who led the journey from Boston to New York City, spoke about the visible demise of indigenous people from their homelands. We're not necessarily welcome in our own homes. We went through a lot to get here. A lot of things almost turned this trip around or almost stopped us, almost took our lives. And our elder here who started, came in and, um, at Nickerson Beach, one of the things he said to us was, it's a miracle that we are still here. Over the years, people have almost tried to erase us. A lot of people don't realize that there are tribal nations on Long Island. The conception was that they died out. <laughs> the myth of extinction, I call it. And that's they're not taught in school. We're the invisible people. And they think Indians all look like Indians west of the Mississippi. That was Sandy Brewster Walker, a government relations officer for the Montaukett Nation who works in public policy and administration. We also heard the voice of John Strong, a historian who has focused much of his work on indigenous tribes of eastern Long Island. Both Brewster Walker and Strong are leading proponents of indigenous recognition on the island by both state and national governments. Strong says the process of getting federally recognized is challenging and selective. What uh, nations are going to be invited to the NANS? Who, what nations are going to be invited to uh, uh, become a part of the uh, federal organizations? Strong argues that the system of federal recognition of indigenous tribes has been flawed from the start. It is a reflection of colonial mentality that has shaped Indian affairs for generations. For example, Strong points to the role played by John Collier, the man credited with the restructuring of the reservation system. Strong says the Bureau of Indian Affairs has a skewed view of who and what Native people were and are. Collier had, uh, his, his interaction with Indians had, uh, at that by that point had been mainly uh, from the Southwest, became very familiar with many Pueblo Indians. And so in Collier's mind, if you didn't look like a Pueblo, you weren't an Indian. And like someone said to me one day, I had on a business suit and because I used to work for President Clinton. And I mentioned I was Indian. And they said, but you don't have a feather or anything. Something stupid like that. And it's just that the TV has uh, kind of distorted our image. And then students aren't taught about the local Native American tribes. When they are taught about New York State history, they teach about um, the Mohawk, which have nothing to do with Long Island. Long Island is home to five tribal nations, but only two school districts on Long Island actively include them in history or cultural curricula. Part of the reason is due to a lack of awareness. Kona Hamby of the Tuscarora Nation says the experiences of Indian nations on Long Island are not unlike what indigenous communities around the world face when it comes to recognition and autonomy. A lot of these discussions come up with the concept of what defines being indigenous or what is indigeneity. What defines someone as indigenous? Why are some communities recognized and others marginalized, if not outright made invisible? It's fair to say there are two main approaches to understanding why and how indigenous people have almost been erased on Long Island. Historian Strong says one is the intermarriage of indigenous people with African Americans. That uh, represents a, a, a sort of a national concept of race and prejudice that uh, there, are, there are basic racial groups uh, in terms of skin color, are, uh, white, Indian, and black, 
And the hierarchy is, of course, white on top, Indian or brown in the middle, and black. You know, down down south, they say, uh, uh, brown, stick around. If you're white, it's all right. If you're black, stay back. The other approach to understanding indigenous erasure on Long Island goes back to when native people were enslaved all around the East Coast. Once again, Sandy Brewster Walker. So in the 1600s, it became illegal to hold an Indian as a slave. So you had people like Isaac Thompson and, and with Hannah. Hannah was the slave of his. And he actually issued two papers. One said, or the only one said that she was Indian. And later on, she becomes black because he, he couldn't hold her as an Indian any longer. This retitling of Native people as colored on the census occurred from the first census in 1790 to 1930. You didn't have to count them because we weren't considered citizens. In every 10-year census, numerators, or the people tasked with administering the census, were instructed to put white if an Indian looked lighter-skinned and colored if they had darker skin. Even though people were stating and a lot of people in the areas knew who the Indian families were, but their race was being slowly changed by the census record. It is because of these census records that many fights for federal or state tribal recognition have been lost, even if they met all the criteria set in the Supreme Court's Montoya decision. This decision defined federal recognition as being based on the group having direct nation-to-nation relations with the federal government or with Congress. In 1910, when the Montoya decision came out, the five nations of Long Island lost any possible standing they had until 2010, when the Shinnecock Nation became the first tribe on Long Island to receive federal recognition. And both the Shinnecock and the Yonkachaw had direct nation-to-nation relations with uh, the uh, colony of New York, and, and, the, uh, and they, both of them had a, a continuing historical existence since then, which is a basic criteria. In 1910, the story goes that in a courtroom of over 300 Montaukets, they were told they no longer exist, that the last of the Montaukets had died out. The reason? Commerce. They had to erase us in 1910. They wanted to put the Long Island Railroad out to Montauk Point. They wanted to make Montauk the official port of entry to New York and transport both passengers and cargo via train to Manhattan. But those damn Indians were in the way. A court case and New York State judge were all it took to strip away any rights or recognition that the Montaukets had. In 1910, there was um, 300 and some odd natives in the room when he declared us non-existent. And he didn't have the right to because the deputy director of the Department of Interior had uh, made a statement that they didn't have the authority to do that. Many historical documents will allude to 13 tribes on Long Island. This is incorrect and comes from the names of territories. The five actual nations on Long Island are the Montauket, Shinnecock, Unchcog, Satellicock, and Mintinicock. The Montauket are thought of as only existing in their namesake village, but they spread out from the North Fork all the way westward to Hempstead. This misinformation spread throughout history has only further led to the delegitimization of nations on Long Island. That is the thunderous crunch of the Shinnecock Nation. Striking again at its annual powwow, open to the public for the first time since 2019. It's medicine for us when we get back in this arena. You just just feel the beat of the drum, the great spirit. It's wonderful to be back. Back with a bang. 
The powwow is a celebration of Native American culture. That's from the Long Island Advocate reporting on the powwow last year in 2022. This is one of the larger events on Long Island, and its public prominence is attributed as part of the reason the Shinnecock are still the only federally recognized tribe on Long Island. Shanae Bullock, a member of the Shinnecock Nation, criticizes the lack of acknowledgement of the various tribes, even cartographically. When you look at a map, any map that shows tribes, you really only see Shinnecock, which is the closest federally recognized tribe to New York City. It almost doesn't even show that there are any other tribes. How many did I just named? The misrepresentation in naming tribal nations on Long Island goes back to the practice of identifying tribes by their territories. There are five nations, but 13 territories. Over the years, the Montaukets of Massapequa became the Massapequa Indians. The notated history became fact, and major groups of people are isolated in the press and the print. So you have to de- kind of go back and decolonize the writing and look at who wrote what. While the Shinnecock are the only federally recognized tribe on Long Island, the Unchkog are state-recognized and hold de facto recognition in federal courts. This means they are protected from lawsuits. This still does not afford them the full rights and privileges of federal recognition. The remaining three tribes on Long Island, they're still fighting for state recognition. Most of the natives on Long Island, we're all cousins, and we know each other, no matter what nation people belong to. Is why um, when we when I rewrote the bill with the help of John and a couple of other people, um, we stated reinstatement, not recognition, because we already existed. In May of 2023, the bill drafted by Sandy unanimously passed the New York State Legislature. The bill, if signed by Governor Hochul, would reinstate the Montaukett as a state-recognized tribe. While this is the fifth time a similar bill has been put to the state legislature, this is the first time it has passed unanimously. This is considered a success for the reinstatement of the Montaukett people. However, many people are not even aware that the Montaukett exist. Part of the problem is when Hofstra or Stony Brook or some, one of the universities sends people out, their students out to do research, they send them to the two reservations. And they just um, regurgitate what is already done instead of doing new research. This leads to issues where despite public knowledge of the five tribes of Long Island in downstate New York, Legislators from upstate New York are unable to find easily accessible and credible information when legislation gets voted on by Albany. It has been riddled with inaccuracies from decades of selective preservation of oral history. That's part of the reason for this canoe journey from Maine to Albany, to share the oral history and stories of their elders across each of the territories past. It is historic in more ways than one. And so now what we're able to do is something that hadn't been done since probably before the colonists arrived. We have been here for time immemorial, and these are our ancestral highways and how our people have been traveling you know, since, since the creation. Bullock finds the New York City portion of this journey particularly special. Not only does it conclude her leg of the journey, but it is a homecoming for her and her ancestor stories. That's where she met. Uh, the Hudson, that's where, that's where the Algonquin-speaking peoples met the Haudenosaunee peoples to trade wampum, to trade shellfish, to trade furs and pelts, to trade all of that. But there was a big interruption that took place when the colonists came. They understood the value of our wampum, understood that, and turned us against each other. 
I believe like it's so important to know these waterways because they're, you know, that's where our people are from. New York City is known to have the largest number of urban dwelling native people in the United States. When I was chatting with indigenous people from all over the world to witness these paddlers land, they observed what great destruction humanity can do to the land. At Jones Beach, on the border of Nassau County in New York City, we see the final transition from nature to the concrete jungle. Bullock notes the parallels between the physical environment and the trends of colonized America. We're a little outnumbered in this room, as far as the original people of this land. And that should be said, that should be something that we notice. That should be something that's noticed as we get closer and closer to the city. Because when you came to Shinnecock, if you were there, it was nothing but Shinnecock people. It was nothing but Uncle people. Nothing but Montauken um, people. But as we get closer and closer through these areas, we've been pushed out. So to be able to paddle in some of the areas that we've been pushed out of is very historic in itself. When I joined the paddlers again in Manhattan and a group of over 10 people to see that piece of nature restored amid adversity, that's power. Being able to experience that landing with a heavy feeling of both joy and sorrow, people gathered from all over. Once again, Quinnahamby. Exercising that sovereignty is doing things like this because you're actually like reclaiming this this practice of your, our ancestors and the way that they used to travel was like using the portage and and following these ways home and it's good to know that we can exercise our sovereignty by just simply living in our indigeneity and living as our authentic selves. We don't need permission when we're coming to our own homeland. That's something that we are showing every time we show up. The first step towards mitigating some of this harm incurred by colonial governments and recognizing indigenous sovereignty is awareness. This journey is just one step in that direction. It is also the first major expedition on these waterways that are utilizing the internet to crowdfund and share their message. Over the last 10 years, um, more people have verbalized their support for us. I think the myth of extinction is itself fading because uh, you don't hear the same kinds of, uh, of rhetoric in the public media uh, or the, such claims. Uh, very seldom will people raise this question about the, the Shinnecock Nation or the Uncatchewick Nation the way you did in the 60s when I first came here. The usage of the internet for both sharing of educational material but also social activism has paved the way for broader action and solidarity. John Strong says it's noticeable. The issue of... Uh, of, uh, extermination or, uh, or fading away or extinction and so forth. That's one of another uh, reason why that uh, isn't heard that much anymore. It's still around, but uh, the internet made a big difference. You don't see that uh, challenged on the in, in public anymore. As I'm interviewing Quinna, where we're on the water, a storm has just come for three hours. The paddlers were stranded on Fox Island by Gilgo Beach. The sun is finally shining again, water calm despite the storm. Quinna is wearing a hat that says, we are on native land. We're still here. Native nations are stronger than ever, and we're going to continue to create native futures and uphold our tribal sovereignties in that good way. For the Long Island Advocate, I'm Cody Millar. And I'm Teo Kazen, Ghost Tours. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio all these years and um, support First Forces Radio and the work that I do after all these years and 
the producer Liz Hill and all these folks that have contributed in the volunteer, everything volunteer, you know, this takes our time, takes our effort, takes our hours. And, um, you know, just if you want to support First Forces Radio to continue, I would just ask you to just think heart strong, good thoughts towards First Forces Radio that we continue and that indigenous voices all over the world, all over the planet, all over Earth, continue to, to keep rising and emerging and bringing balance to this world of confusion that has been created, at least here in Turtle Island, for the last 500 plus years. Earth is crying out, Earth is telling us that we are out of rhythm. And what better thoughts to bring than that which was in balance before this chaos arrived in 1492. You think about that, makes you want to think differently about the way you're walking, the way you're living, and maybe the programming that you've been told, which is now the illusion that will never come true. The reality is different for a lot of Native people across the planet, across Mother Earth. So in this good way, thank you for joining us here on First Forces Radio. I'm Teokasin Ghost Horse. See you next time.
Thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. I'm Tio Kazin, Ghost Horse. Girl, you gotta 